Hello and welcome to our podcast on the hidden tax inflation. At Rothschild & Co, we're acutely aware of the impact that inflation can have on individual wealth, as well as the wider economy. We strive to understand and, where possible, predict potential inflationary risks and structure our portfolios accordingly, helping us to meet our investment objective of preserving and growing the real value of our clients' wealth over the long term. As economies continue to recover from the pandemic, there is increasing concern that this growth, combined with ongoing fiscal and monetary stimulus from governments, may present the risk of higher inflation in the near future. In this context, we wanted to discuss what inflation actually is, as well as what causes it, the impact it can have, and some of the ways it can be managed. To help do this, I'm joined by Global Investment Strategist Kevin Gardner, Executive Vice Chair Dean Losh, and Portfolio Manager and Equity Analyst Mark Wallace, who will share their insights into past inflationary periods, as well as the risk of inflation going forwards. So let's start with uh, with Kevin. So Kevin, you know, many clients and frankly colleagues have never seen inflation. You know, what exactly is it? That's a good question. We use the word a lot and we use it in a very fast and loose sense, but it's got a pretty specific meaning, really. Um, it means an ongoing increase. So not just a one-off change caused by taxes, but an ongoing sustained increase in the average prices. So not just the prices of one or two things, but the average prices of, of things that typical households, so representative normal households, if you like, by on a routine day-to-day -day basis. And the easiest way to think about it, I think, is to go back to the old notion of what we used to call the cost of living. Inflation is, is a way of measuring the change in the cost of living. So I guess what, why should we really worry about it? You know, if, if wages go up and interest rates go up as well, what, what is it that, what's the problem? Again, that's a very good point, because if everything went up at the same rate, uh, there arguably wouldn't be big problems. There'd still be the issue of keeping price tickets and contracts up to date. That's what uh, economists call shoe leather, admin type type costs. But if everything went up at the same pace, the wider impact might not be that uh, that big. But, very big but, in practice, Wages and interest rates don't go up always in line with the rate of inflation. And sometimes when inflation gets too high and it starts to become completely out of control, we move into hyperinflationary hyper territory, then the impact can be more severe again. You can actually see business, government, society even collapse because of the complete loss of the value of money. That doesn't happen very often, thankfully, but when it does, it can be extremely traumatic uh, socially. The impact is very unfair as well. Poor families on fixed nominal incomes like benefits, they're obviously hugely exposed to a little bit of inflation. But at the other end of the spectrum too, people who've saved a lot and are lucky enough to have savings in bank accounts, if interest rates don't keep up with inflation, then they're penalised as well. And it's almost a uh, it's almost as if the prudent are particularly penalised uh, by inflation. And there are very few winners. Uh, perhaps the only potential winners from moderate inflation might be governments because they've borrowed a lot and the real value of their borrowings uh, often goes down if interest rates uh, don't keep up. But when inflation gets out of control, there are no winners because as business collapses, governments often collapse too. So um, moving to Dean, Dean, you and I remember inflation. As I said, many of our many of our clients um, don't, but it can really, you know, erode the value of your wealth. I, I guess the question is, you know, at what level does it really start to have an impact? 
Well, uh, yes, it, it sort of depends, I guess, on, on market expectations at the time and one's time horizon. Um, so as Kevin said, if markets are already pricing in a return of some inflation, then the impact on interest rates and bond yields and valuations may not be that great. And we're not necessarily telling you today that we're expecting a return to 1970s levels of inflation. But even at, say, much more moderate levels of inflation, say, for example, 2 to 3% per annum, if one's time horizon is long enough, then that can have quite a meaningful uh, effect on one's wealth. You certainly would see some wealth erosion over time. And with 2%, if you start with £25 million, a 2% rate of inflation, then after 25 years, less than one generation, you're down to £15 million. So it, it can be material over long periods, even at lower rates of inflation. And people do tend to think in nominal terms rather than real terms. Yeah, what's what's the danger in that? Well, yeah, they do. You're, you're quite right, Helen. It's an extremely important point. Uh, we go on a lot about real terms, but, but as you say, people often think in nominal terms. I think the reason it's 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 potentially dangerous is what we've just said. If you're seeking to preserve uh, your wealth in real terms uh, for any length of time, then the impact of inflation on that the real value of that wealth can be quite meaningful. And you do, I think, need to think quite carefully about that and to invest accordingly. And again, maybe just to illustrate the point, if one thinks back to that inflationary period in the 70s, if one thinks, for example, of the US stock market from, say, the end of 68 through to 81, the S&P 500 returned 88%. Most of us would think that was pretty good over 13 years. Uh, doesn't sound so good if you say that it actually fell in real terms by 29% over those 13 years. So it, it makes a big difference. And and the other way of thinking about this is to turn it the other way around, going back to something Kevin said, if we think of purchasing power, what is that wealth that you've saved intended to buy? What are you going to use it for? And it's that purchasing power uh, you've got to maintain uh, with your wealth and that's why it, it plays to think in some senses in, in, in real terms as well, just to remind you that you've got to keep up uh, with those rates of inflation. So we've only talked about the 70s so far, Kevin. Um, I guess the question really is, you know, how often does it, does it actually happen a lot? Well, sustained inflation widespread across a large number of countries seems to be a relatively modern phenomenon. Just going all the way back to the 14th century, where we can see using data compiled by the Bank of England, to the extent that we can really believe inflation data going back that far, the typical rates of inflation for most of recorded history, for which we've got data, um, have been maybe 1%, 2%, something like that. And given the measurement error surrounding the notion of a price level, um, that's insignificant. It's only really the 20th century where we've seen global inflation on a significant uh, sustained uh, scale. We saw one or two uh, very severe individual country experiences back in the, well, a number of times during the 20th century. Back in the early 1920s, we saw the Weimar Republic effectively one of the factors leading to its collapse was the runaway inflation that Germany saw. But it was really the 1970s when inflation became relatively widespread across a large number of, of countries. And it persisted 
for year after year after after year. And I'm afraid the standout in that uh, experience, unfortunately, has to have been the UK, where the annual rate of retail price inflation actually peaked at 27% in the year to August 1975. And the rate actually averaged 14% over the 10 years up to 1982. Uh, going back to that 1975 episode, by way of perspective, when inflation was at 27, the bank rate was at 12. So imagine what was being done to your savings in a bank account when inflation was at that, uh, that sort of uh, level. And at that time in the UK and across Western markets, as we're going to, as we have been discussing, and we'll 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 hear more about in a moment, uh, portfolios generally, not just bank deposits, were hit pretty hard. Bonds were hit very hard, but uh, we saw the biggest ever bear market that we've seen in the UK in the year of 1974, as that inflation was really getting going. So, what causes it, Kevin? Well, um, we think I and. Mean, I'll come back to why I say think rather than know for sure in a moment. But it's got something to do with uh, the imbalance of demand and supply in the economy. When there is more demand uh, than supply, when demand suddenly increases relative to supply, prices effectively seem to be bid up across the economy. It's like an auction process, only it applies right the way across the economy rather than to one or two uh, one or two. Um, uh, I, I, items. And it's as if collectively we, we're not able to make enough stuff to satisfy the demand which suddenly has come into uh, in, into being. It could be that uh, it's demand that rises unexpectedly. It could also be that uh, there's been a supply problem and that the amount of stuff we're able to produce has suddenly been hit maybe by a shortage of commodities or maybe by difficult industrial relations. But at the core of the issue is an imbalance between demand and supply. The reason I said we can't be too precise about this is that the things that drive supply and demand um, in particular and the way in which they interact to push prices up, they're just not known with any great confidence. Central bankers and academics, they've got these computer models of the way in which the inflation process works, but they're not very good. They just don't fit terribly well. So we don't know exactly the way in which uh, demand becomes excessive and the way in which that in turn feeds through to a rate of increase in prices. And it's always possible that we're, we're blaming the wrong, uh, the wrong uh, culprits, as it were, in, in some ways, because if the things driving demand and supply are what really matter to things like profitability, Suppose it was uh, industrial relations in the 1970s that were driving down real profitability. Inflation, in a way, is just the fall guy. Inflation was as much cause as effect in the underlying process. And it's very difficult to know for sure exactly what is the prime mover of the undoubted bad news that coexisted with inflation when it was with us. If it's difficult to know what what it is. <laughs> um, and it's been very subdued for what, over a quarter of a century now. Why, why, why are we beginning to worry about it? I think at the moment, because we, we're just coming out, hopefully we're coming out of this horrible uh, pandemic, the suppression of the pandemic has hit both supply and demand. Both, both sides of the equation have come down. But as we're coming out of it, there are good reasons for thinking that demand is going to recover faster than supply because policy is very loose. Interest rates are very low. Money supplies have expanded. Those things are not going to be taken off the table very quickly. And some governments, including the UK, but most visibly the US, 
are also still stimulating their economies with fiscal policy. So aggregate demand is going to stay boosted by public sector demand and activity, yet private sector demand I think is capable and is recovering pretty briskly. So demand is rising quite fast, but supply may not rise quite as quickly. It may be a little bit more uh, slow to respond. And that's why we think inflation is a particular risk uh, at this uh, this point in time. It's not inevitable. Uh, the, the underlying performance of economies is much better now than it seemed to have been back in the 1970s. And there are all sorts of other changes which also reduce the risk, but it's something that we have to keep an eye on, we feel. So on that, you know, Dean, if you think about it, sort of post the global financial crisis, one would perhaps have expected to see some inflation, and yet we sort of haven't really, have we? Well, I think that that, that, that sort of deserves a yes and no answer. <laughs> yeah, we, we have not seen the levels of inflation that a lot of us expected to see after the, the global financial crisis with all the QE and so on. And some of you on the call may remember that book by Reinhardt and Rogoff that got a lot of publicity at the time arguing that that thesis that inflation was coming and and frankly i think some of us have to put our hands up and say uh, we we believed that thesis and it didn't happen uh, as we know headline uh, retail and consumer price inflation has remained very quiescent in the last decade or so uh, but there are i think two big caveats here i just want to highlight one is that for a lot of our clients the sort of things that they spend a reasonable proportion of their annual budget on have gone up by a lot more than retail and consumer price inflation. One thinks of house prices, school fees, healthcare insurance, rail travel. These things have gone up by a lot more than, than the headline levels of inflation in the last decade. And the other big caveat, I think, which is probably in a way more important for the purposes of our call this morning, is that we sort of have had inflation since the global financial crisis. But we've had asset price inflation, not retail or consumer price inflation. Yeah. And there is a possibility uh, that that might be storing up lower returns from here, uh, especially if some of that uh, 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 monetary and fiscal stimulus that Kevin mentioned uh, starts to recede. So if we're saying that we think there's a greater expectation that we might get inflation, is the expectation important? Is it something of a self-fulfilling prophecy? If we think we're going to get it, we're more likely to get it? Well, yeah, very possibly. I mean, as Kevin's just reminded us, economists do differ on their explanations for the reasons for inflation. But what you've just mentioned, Helen, that, that, that concept of expectation, I think is quite important. And intuitively, if you think of people's behaviour, that sort of makes sense. If you think prices are going to rise more more quickly all else being equal you might be likely to spend more more quickly uh, you certainly might be likely to demand higher wages as an investor you might require higher rental income higher dividends higher interest income to cover that expected increase in the inflation level and that can eventually if everybody starts thinking that that can eventually have a knock-on effect and and may get out of hand fairly quickly. Now, we've seen that, if you think back, we've seen that in reverse more slowly from the early 80s onwards. It took people a long time to believe that inflation was on the way down, but eventually people got used to lower, level, lower levels of wage increases, lower levels of interest from their building society passbooks. Um, I looked up the other day that 
Uh, some of you may remember on the call a book by Roger Bootle called The Death of Inflation. I looked up the other day to see when it came out. It came out in 1996. And I mentioned that because when it came out, a lot of us thought, death of inflation, you've got to be kidding. And yet, you know, it carried on going because eventually people started to believe. So I think expectations do matter in that. Past books, you've just given away your age, Dean. I had one as well. It was blue. <laughs> I had to go to the post office with it. That's it. Um, That's it. <laughs> there, uh, look, there are other reasons, right, why we may not have such a benign environment for markets. Uh, you know, it's not just inflation. So, you know, if we look forward, you know, do we think that, you know, obtaining real returns is going to get more challenging? Yeah, I guess on balance, we, we think it might. Yes, I, th I think that's a fair assumption. In short, the last decade or so since the financial crisis has seen the most, as we know, the most phenomenal uh, real returns for investors. We've had very strong market gains. And as we've said this morning, as we all know, uh, at the headline level, we've had quite quiescent uh, levels of inflation. But from here, from this point, it is therefore possible that as we're beginning from elevated valuation levels, we might be about to enter a period of lower average returns simply because of what we've just been through. Uh, even if we don't see a major market correction or some uh, meaningful switch of allocation of capital uh, of, of profits from, from, from capital to labor, it may just be that we get on average over the next years lower levels of returns. And if you combine that with just a bit of a pickup in inflation, say to two or three percent, you put those two together, then as you say, Helen, for a typical balanced portfolio, maybe targeting inflation plus three over the long term. Uh, yeah, that long term target real return may still be achievable. But it's possible that in the next couple of years, that may be quite a bit more challenging to achieve. And I think in that sense, I guess it's a cyclical point, really. So, Mark, we've let you off so far. <laughs> How about we have a look at what the impact of inflation is on asset prices? You know, I mean, typically people think of equities as being a good hedge against inflation. Is that actually true? Well, it is true, Helen. But like a lot of things in economics, that does come with a rider. Because it is only really true over the very long term, by which I mean periods of over 20 years. Now, we encourage clients to think longer term but 20 years might be stretching it, even for our most patient. So there have been some quite lengthy periods where equities haven't provided much of a hedge. And Dean referred to one of these, that period of high inflation in the 1970s. And I think many investors at that time assumed that rising inflation would be accompanied by rising profits and share prices. But as we know, this is not what actually happened. And if we look at U.S. stock returns from 1969 to 1981, it looked like you were doing OK with a nominal return of nearly 90 percent. But your real return, so your return after inflation, was actually a negative 30 percent. And this is why inflation is so pernicious. It looked like you were doing OK, but in real terms, you were actually going backwards. And I think it's interesting to look at this in a little bit more detail and ask ourselves why this happened. And I think there is a clue if we look at the return on equity for U.S. companies over this period. So in other words, how much companies earned on every dollar of book equity invested in their businesses. And on average, since the early 1970s, this return has been around 14%. So for every $100 of equity invested, 
companies are producing returns or profits of $14. And what is interesting is that this return has not changed much despite very different rates of inflation. So when inflation got to nearly 15% in the late 1970s, the return on equity was still around that 14% level. That return did not rise to compensate investors for the higher inflation rates. So the return on equity has pretty much been fixed. Perhaps, therefore, equities are actually more similar to bonds than we like to believe. And just like bonds, if your return or coupon is fixed and you get higher rates of inflation, then that coupon is going to be worth less. So we can expect price earnings multiples to fall when inflation rates are high, and that is exactly what happened in the 1970s, with multiples falling from 18 times in the early 70s to below seven times in the early 80s. So another correct or not question, you know, gold is always sort of touted again as being uh, as being something that will help protect you against inflation. Is is that correct? Well, I think it's a it's a similar story uh, with gold to the extent that over the very long term, prices have been remarkably stable. And I looked at the price of gold back in 1921, which was about three hundred dollars per ounce in today's money versus the current price of seventeen hundred dollars. Uh, so it has sort of protect, hasn't given us much growth, but it has uh, preserved our wealth in real terms. But if you look within this period, there have been times when it has not been a good hedge. So it did work quite well in the 70s. And I think the price of gold went from about $100 an ounce in 1976, peaking at $850 uh, per ounce in 1980. Um, but actually, uh, since then, it's done, it's done very little. And the price today is still below that peak, well below that peak in, 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 in real terms. And meanwhile, uh, the value of a dollar today is a, is a third of what it was back in 1980. So I think more recently, gold has, has disappointed. So it's not equities necessarily, it's not gold necessarily. Some of our competitors have been suggesting that Bitcoin is actually the answer. What do you think about that? Well, the, there are some things to like about Bitcoin. Uh, it's fixed supply. Uh, it's much easier to transport and store as compared to gold. You do need a password. I did hear quite an amusing story, not amusing for the person that applied to, but uh, there's, there's, a, there's a chap in the States. He's got $250 million of Bitcoin in a digital vault, and he's forgotten his password. And I think he's had eight attempts, and after 10, the, the sort of vault self-destructs. Um, so, yeah, so passwords are important. But I think Bitcoin suffers a similar issue to gold in that it is almost impossible to value. So what is a Bitcoin worth? Is it worth $1, $1,000, $100,000? I think it's really difficult to answer that question. And therefore, it is very difficult to assess what is already in the price of Bitcoin and therefore how it might perform in an inflationary climate. Could it be like gold in 1980, where a lot is already in the price? Mm. And could we therefore be sitting here in 2060 somewhat disappointed? And that's before we even think about the ESG considerations of the power required exactly. to generate them. So if we end up with uh, higher taxes, which there's been a lot of chat about, and we end up with higher inflation, then that's sort of a double whammy. You know, have we been in that position before? Yes, we have. And again, in the 70s, we saw this pretty uh, noxious combination of high taxes and high inflation, 
which effectively wiped out returns for investors for much of that decade. And if inflation is at 10% and you're paying 50% in taxes, you need a return of over 20% per annum just to stand still, which is quite something. And I can't see many opportunities these days to get those sorts of returns. And if returns generally are below inflation, you are effectively paying taxes of over 100%, uh, over 100%. So you are going backwards. Okay, so pretty depressed now, Mark. Um, <laughs> what what can we actually do about this? Well, again, um, I think the 70s are quite interesting looking at uh, what happened in the 70s and were the ways to sort of preserve your wealth back in the 70s. And again, whilst equity markets in aggregate didn't do very well and they were really flat from 1966 to 1982, which is a pretty, pretty long period. Uh, during that time, there were 187 stocks in the US market that went up over 100 times and plenty of equities that did really well. So I think, you know, you can find the right sort of businesses, uh, the right sort of assets to own. But I think you need to be very selective. And the businesses that tend to do better in an inflationary climate are those with high and sustainable profitability, companies that have pricing power and don't need a lot of capital to operate. So I think those are the sorts of companies that we need to focus on. So it's, it's not just a sort of markets call effectively. I think we're saying you've got to be more, you've got to be much more selective than that. Exactly. Um, I guess that also feeds into this kind of idea that, you know, traditional bonds are therefore likely not to give protection either. And so when we think about diversification, how can we, how can we think about that? Yeah, I think it's important to think about that because uh, higher inflation is likely to be accompanied by higher volatility in asset prices. And I think an increased risk of sharps or drawdowns in markets. So protection and diversification will be very important. Uh, and I would point to three areas. And as you say, whilst we don't like traditional bonds, particularly given current prices, we do like inflation-linked bonds where the coupons are linked to rates of inflation. And we would look to um, own inflation-linked uh, bonds across currencies and across markets. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, we think we're likely to see stronger trends in prices of assets, both upward and downward trends. So funds that seek to exploit these price movements, so-called trend-following funds, may do well. And indeed, we have seen some good performance from these funds recently on the back of strong trends in commodity prices. Uh, and finally, uh, we'd look to put options and other forms of insurance on equities as well as corporate and government bonds. Now, these perform well during COVID last year. Prices are more expensive relative to where they were, but there may be opportunities here and they are certainly worth keeping an eye on. So I think that's a, that combination of a mix of, of high quality uh, companies and funds and some inflation-linked bonds and well-thought-out diversifiers on the other side would be a good um, a good mix in an inflationary climate. So just on that, Mark, can you perhaps give us an example of the sort of company that would have pricing power but doesn't need an enormous amount of capital to, to operate? Yes, yeah, so I think quite an interesting area um, are the payments uh, processing companies, so uh, businesses such as Visa and MasterCard and, to an extent, American Express. 
So this is a oligopoly uh, across the world. They've got very high market shares, which gives them pricing power. And, and Visa and Moscow, they only take a very small amount out of each transaction, around 13 basis points. Uh, and actually, they haven't used that pricing power, particularly over the last 10 or so years, but they could. But I think what puts them in a really good position is that they are getting that uh, a percentage of nominal spend, not real spend. So as inflation goes up and as we pay more, so their revenues will increase. So that's that puts them in quite a nice position. So I think, you know, we will see their profits go up in an inflationary climate. And they require very, very little capital to operate. So they are make, making closer to 100% return on equity uh, rather than 14%. Uh, and they don't need to invest much capital to grow. Uh, so I think that puts them in a really good position uh, should we see higher inflation. So it's those sorts of businesses we like. Interesting. Kevin, you talked about, um, I think it's worth just looking at the other side of this, you talked about um, kind of Chinese labour and technology and how actually that might dampen inflation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yes, e exactly. I mean, those are the, to look at on, on the bright side a little more, um, the flexibility of supply. I said that inflation is an imbalance between demand and supply. And it is possible that we're, we're just too pessimistic about the flexibility of the supply side of the economy. We might find that productivity, um, all sorts of things actually give us more of a supply response than we've been anticipating, and that would help keep inflation at bay. And a couple of the things that really could do that would be, um, it's not a recent development, but it's been helping keeping keep inflation subdued for a couple of decades now, the introduction of China to the, to the, the, the global trading system on a, uh, a fuller basis. More Chinese labor has come into the global economy effectively, and uh, that's helped to keep the, the price of a very important uh, input to production uh, down. We've also seen uh, continuing gains in uh, technology, improvements in technology. And for me, um, that's probably the most exciting thing going forward as an economist. And one of the many things it can deliver for us alongside higher prosperity is that uh, that technology could um, improve price transparency, um, it could boost productivity. It could help to keep inflation um, inflation at bay as well. And here in the UK in particular, one of the things that um, I'm, I'm reminded of almost on a day-to-day -day basis is that uh, I talked earlier about the industrial relations backdrop, how grim it was in the 1970s. It's been changed profoundly in the UK. It was never such a problem elsewhere in the developed world, although the US had its problems too. It's improved a bit there also, but here in the UK, it's really been transformed. So there are reasons for if you like, thinking that a little bit of sunshine might be out there, even though um, there are, is some inflation risk. Dean, you know, if we listen to all of this, you know, we always talk about having inflation-linked objectives. You know, do people need to rethink that? I'd be reluctant to say that they need to rethink basing their objectives on some sort of concept of inflation for the reasons that we said earlier. If you think about what most of us are trying to achieve, uh, in the business that we, we we work in. We're trying to preserve the wealth of our clients over the long term in real terms. So some sort of concept of inflation in your target setting or, or expectations or, 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 or trying to articulate what you're trying to achieve, I think is important and I wouldn't want to get rid of that. 
Uh, there's a famous uh, old adage that nobody uh, chiseled on their headstone when they died, I outperformed the S&P 500. I mean, relative performance is a great thing, but it's not really ultimately what this is all about. On the other hand, uh, yes, continuing with that sort of mindset is one thing, but to try and slightly tweak the answer to the question, uh, Helen, I think what might be worth uh, reviewing and reconsidering is what one's expectations are for those real returns over the next few years. I'll just close maybe by, by quoting one uh, example of a client uh, who we've looked after for getting on for a couple of decades now. And almost every one of the six monthly meetings, uh, we go and see the client or their advisor and the trustees, we say, well, you know, it's been great, but uh, this probably isn't going to continue. And eventually, it, it's almost become a standing joke between us because they point out that we say that every time. Well, well one day we're going to be right. But the point of uh, mentioning that is that we mustn't lose sight of the fact that particularly the last decade, as we've said this morning, investors generally have done extremely well. And the chances of that being the case over the next years, all else being equal, you'd have thought that's probably got a lower probability. So I think people have just got to adjust their expectations a bit. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and found it a useful refresher on inflation and the role it plays in our economy. From our perspective, we feel that it is by no means certain that inflation will take hold, and certainly not to the level we saw during the 1970s. However, we remain alert to this possibility and to the impact that even relatively small increases of inflation can have on our clients' real wealth and purchasing power. We maintain conviction in our investment approach and its focus on preserving and growing the real value of your wealth over the long term. And we feel confident in our ability to deliver on it, even if we find ourselves in a situation of increased inflation. As always, please get in touch with your client advisor should you wish to speak to us about inflation or any other questions that we may be able to answer. If you wish to listen to more of our podcasts, you can find these on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And please subscribe to our channel if you wish to receive them as soon as they are released. Thanks again for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.